This, um, as we mentioned last week, uh, we are currently in the season that we call Eastertide, or the Easter season, or some call it the Paschal season. Uh, it's the season that consists of seven Sundays, actually, seven Sundays beginning with the first Sunday, uh, Easter, and extending until the eighth Sunday that we call Pentecost Sunday. It's a period of 50 days. It's the uh, Christian church's way of saying that Easter and that Paschal cycle was too much to just contain in a day or a weekend. So I, I like the word Easter tide because it's like this is a tide, a tidal wave of sorts that we reflect upon the ripples of for weeks following. Ron Rollheiser describes the Easter season or the Paschal season as a cycle. He says that uh, there is, in Good Friday, there is the naming of our deaths. Think about that. The Good Friday is the naming of our deaths. In Resurrection Sunday, there is the claiming of our birth. We name our deaths, and then on Sunday we claim our birth. And then there is that period of time, either the 50 days between uh, Easter and Pentecost, or maybe even the 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension, when the Apostle Paul said Christ was seen. There is that time of seeing. Uh, specifically, there is that time, uh, the disciples lived it out well, of readjusting and reorienting um, and reframing a new life. The same life, but a new life. It was, it was Jesus before, and it was Jesus after and with all of the grand sameness, there was also an incredible difference. And then there is that moment of ascension where after you have reframed and adjusted or in that process, there comes that sacramental moment that really encapsulates. Jesus takes them to the mount and it encapsulates everything they'd been doing for the previous 40 days as Jesus ascends. You release the old. You let it go. Um, there are a lot of therapeutic uh, processes that will have people take, you know, out to a, a, a mountain, take burdens and wounds and write them down. And, and I, I've done this a couple of times and actually then put them into a fire. And just watching the smoke go up is the release. It's the letting go. So the ascension is that, is that place where you let go and you let it ascend. You let it leave you. And then Pentecost, what a beautiful thing. Pentecost is when it comes back to you in new and refreshed and invigorating ways. Pentecost is when that which you had the courage to let go comes back to you and blesses you in ways you could have never imagined. So we name our deaths, we claim our births, we reframe and we readjust, we release and we let go, and then finally comes the refreshing and it blesses you. Um, in that five-step process, the Easter season or Easter tide really rests in that third place. And that's what our, our series is about right now. It's focusing on that part of the gospel that Paul called the sightings. When Christ lived, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected. But then we gloss over that part where Paul says he was seen then. And in that 40 day period, uh, Easter tide is about reframing and reorienting and adjusting. Easter tide is the season when when Christ and life 
when new life comes to you. And I think about the way Jesus came to those that saw him in that 40-day period. It's the same way that life and the Christ comes to us again and again. It's the season, it's the season when life comes to you invitationally, not impositionally. When life comes to you gently. That season of 40 days when they were scared witless and yet Jesus kept, as Barbara Streisand saying years ago, coming in and out of their lives. Anybody remember that? Am I dating myself? Coming in and out of their lives over and again. I really wish I knew modern music. I get so embarrassed talking about Air Supply and Three Dog Night and <laughs> Tony Bennett all the time. The Easter season is the time when Christ, when new life comes to you invitationally, gently, and it touches your pain. It touches your loss, it touches your wounds. And I'm thankful that in the beginning that cycle was indicated as a process. He didn't just resurrect and ascend and Pentecost happened. There was process there. There was a, a process for grief where the Christ calls us to see newness to look at it differently, to, to grieve the losses, but to also, in the grief, to wallow out a capacity in your soul for rebirth. Last week we touched, just quickly, at the end of the sermon on five different people, and Carol Brusigar, one of our council members, and I were having coffee yesterday, and we were just talking about the brilliance of sacred, sacred literature, and really the brilliance of our sacred literature, the Bible, that we literally are not people who are just sentimentally holding on to a book and a ritual because we're, we're too weak to let go of it. I, I felt that for a while, but eventually you come back to its wisdom and you're just amazed that this thousand, these books that were written thousands of years ago are embedded with things like the Paschal Cycle. I mean, who in this room doesn't understand that life is a process of naming deaths and claiming births? and reframing and reorienting to new light and having sacramental moments where we have to let go and release the old, allowing it to bless us with the new. Last week I was just, Carol, this is what Carol and I were talking about yesterday. Just, I have never until this past week or two in this particular season of Easter really looked at the stories of the sightings of Jesus the way I looked at them this time. How therapeutically relevant to our lives these stories are. I, I thought about five and I think I, I looked at these five with you last week. Mary Magdalene, Thomas, uh, the Emmaus bound disciples, Simon Peter, and then the ten disciples minus Judas and Thomas on the Sunday evening after the resurrection. All five of them, I mean you don't have to you don't have to manage the story, you don't have to try to squeeze blood out of a turnip. This is not holding the book, trying to make it relevant. Those five people and groups, think about them. Mary Magdalene met the resurrected Christ, but she did not experience the full benefit of the resurrection because she could not see the Christ. Why could she not see the Christ? Grief. Um, Juliana, this last year, walking through the lost hole, was Mary Alice when she passed? 37? Grief, breathtaking grief, has a way of blinding your eyes to the new, to the resurrected. 
And sometimes it takes 40 days and sometimes it takes a year. But eventually that grief process leads you, the spirit leads you um, to the difficulty of awareness and acceptance and action into the waters of baptism. I think about Jesus and his baptism. The spirit descended on him like a gentle dove. And the next chapter says immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. The gentleness of the spirit followed by the rigor of the spirit calling us to action. Mary Magdalene could not see Jesus, the resurrected one, because of her grief. And grief does that to us. And it takes 40 days, sometimes a year, but our eyes eventually heal. Thomas. Thomas wasn't one of the ten. For whatever reason, Thomas missed the first Sunday night uh, service in the Christian church. Anybody grow up a Sunday night church? Man, I, I did. We had Wednesday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night every week. Four services a week. And every other Friday, we had either a youth rally or a sectional uh, fellowship meeting. So every other week, we had five services. We went to church. We thought God had a ledger sheet, and we were impressing God by how much we went to church. And uh, our Sunday night services actually were the biggest. Sunday morning, we thought, was for like Methodist and Presbyterian people. Sunday night was when we hit the altar and made it right with God, brother. Well, the first Sunday night after the resurrection, he resurrected that morning. That Sunday night, the Bible explicitly says that the ten disciples, sans Judas and sans uh, Thomas, for whatever reason, they went to a room and they hid themselves, turned out the lights, and the Bible says they were terribly afraid because they thought what had happened to their leader was soon to befall them. They were quaking with fear behind the walls, and, and clearly the Bible says the doors were locked. And the resurrected Christ doesn't knock, he walks through the wall, which was his way of walking through their fear. He just walks through the wall and they see him and they immediately begin to herald to others. But they were at first incapable of seeing him because they were, uh, they were afraid. And fear has a way of blinding us. Man, we do crazy stuff when we're afraid, don't we? The stuff we do, the hurtful stuff we do to ourselves and others. All the ways that we run. I literally, as a 49-year-old man just a few months ago, began to sit down with a spiritual director and just work through midlife stuff that all of us should work through. And almost automatically, it became very clear that I was in a season of my life where I was running. And the question became from this sage of a man, what are you running from? It's fear. What are you afraid of? Fear has a way of blocking our sight. Uh, that was the ten disciples. And then Thomas... When they told Thomas about it, Thomas said, I, I, I won't believe. I can't believe. I, it doesn't make sense to me. It is too much to believe. And when Thomas finally, a week later, faced Jesus, Thomas literally said to him, I, cannot, I can't believe. I don't believe this. I don't, I don't know whether this is an apparition. I don't know what this is, but I don't believe it. Thomas could not see because of existential doubt. Anybody here wrestled with your faith? Anybody here struggled to believe in God? Anybody here gone through a crisis of faith? <laughs> Thanks for raising your hand. You just raised your hand for all of us. Existential doubt keeps you from seeing. And then we talked about um, Peter. 
Though all of these deny you, not me, so unaware of his own frailty, so aware of everybody else's frailty, I know all of these guys will, I can totally see how these people would fail you, but not me. And then complete denial, rooster crows, and then there's that moment when he's out on a boat in that resurrection, post-resurrection period where they see what they think to be Jesus on the shore. And the Bible literally says, um, one of the translations says, Peter stripped. He's the, so there is a stripper mentioned in the Bible. It was Simon Peter, an unfortunate name for a stripper, by the way. But he stripped <laughs> and he got into the water and he made his way. And Steve, when he got, when he got to the shore, there was that painful interchange of Simon, lovest thou me? And I, I've said this before and I don't want to over-repeat it. But I've heard it a hundred times, and it never fails to bless me. When Jesus met Simon on the shore, and he gave him the three counterbalancing, lovest thou me. We always say they were counterbalancing because he had denied three times, remember? But it's so important to remember that the Greek language has four words. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a magnificent work on the four loves. You should read it if... If you've read Lewis at all, it's one of his best. Um, three of the loves we see in the New Testament quite often, eros, uh, uh, filial, and agape love. Eros being the lesser love, it's the love a child has for its mother. It's the love a drowning person has for a, a life jacket. It's an upward reaching love. And then filial love or the love, the verb cognate is phileo, it's where we get uh, uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it's sibling love. It's not the love of a child or the love of a parent, it's that love of equanimity, mutuality, of a symbiotic relationship, a give and take. It's a good love. It's the love a lot of us live a lot of our life in. And then there's agape love. It's not the love Butch the child has for the parent, it's the love the parent has for the child. It's agape. It's downward reaching. It's um, just of what we were talking about the other day where Dorothy Day, the great social worker in New York, was always being overwhelmed with young people coming to absolve and relieve their social consciences by working with her. After a few months, often they would leave, having satisfied that. Dorothy said a lot of them went home very disappointed because they did not get from what she referred to and wrote eloquently about as the ungrateful poor. And Steve, you know that world, the ungrateful poor. But Dorothy said that she would always tell the young people who come to work with her, give only if you're a person for whom the giving is its own reward. Give expecting nothing in return. Now you can be hopeful for sure. You don't have to be cynical. But there's a difference between expectation and hope. Don't become a cynical person, but hold hope, but don't be expectant. Give. Give in an agape way that is downward reaching and doesn't expect return. Well, it's interesting in that Simon Peter exchange when Jesus spoke to him, if you look at the original Greek text, which is not hard, I mean, you, can, you all can get an interlinear Bible where you have the Greek language and the uh, English language side by side. And generally, there's not a lot that can be added, honestly, by looking at the Greek language. Uh, but in some cases there are, and this is one of them. Because when Jesus looked at Simon, Jesus said, picking one of the three words, Jesus said, Simon, agapao thou me. 
He called him, Jacob, he called him that highest love. A guy he had just said, you're all going to deny me. And the guy said, no, I don't. I love you too much. And Jesus says, do you agapao me? That's, that feels like grinding salt in the wound of somebody after they obviously have just failed you miserably. I mean, to look at a spouse that has been unfaithful and for the first question to be, do you unconditionally love me? I mean, how do you answer that? What do you... You've already overestimated yourself miserably. You've already failed miserably. And the juxtaposition, the contrast of your overestimation and your grand failure is already grinding you. And then the person says, Agapa, oh, thou me. And Simon responded, Lord, I phileo you. Now see how different that is in the Greek than it is in the English? In the, in the English, you love me, I love you. In the Greek, agapao thou me, I phileo you. Self-awareness, this is good. I, I obviously don't love you in a way that is not costing. I have loved you in a way that is give and take. And at the moment you were not able to give to me, at, the mo at that moment when I realized there was nothing else I could get and my Messiah was about to be killed, at the moment this love for you was going to cost me, I obviously did not agapao you. And in phileo love, the moment it was not mutual and life-giving for me, I was out. It's brilliant. Isn't that incredible to see that in the text? And then... Jesus asked the second time, here's the counterbalancing, the, the grinding. Simon, agapao thou me. And he says, I phileo you, Lord. And the third time is remarkable. This is where I'm, this is, this is the stuff that heals eyes. Because Peter could not see because his eyes were so glossed by regret and failure. Anybody ever been there? You just cannot let yourself up. It's just, you, it, it, again, it's almost a, it's an inverted form of narcissism where you are such a special flower. Anybody else you would forgive, but you can't forgive yourself. It really is, that kind of self-loathing can be very self-aggrandizing. Like, like my, my friend looked at me after a miserable failure in my life when I was saying, I just can't believe that I've done this. And he looked at me and said, you arrogant so-and-so. What? And he said, oh, you can believe everybody else could. You're very merciful to other people when they have these missteps. But not you. No, no, you can't believe that you could do this. And then he softened in a very resurrecting moment for me. He softened, leaned in and said, welcome to the human family, Reverend. That is a long and arduous process, isn't it, folks? Not just for reverence, but for all of us being welcomed. And that was, this was a welcoming moment. The third time Jesus looked at Peter, watch what the resurrection always does. The resurrected Christ does not flaunt the resurrection, but immediately tends to Mary's wounds of grief, immediately tends to Thomas's wounds of doubt, immediately tends to the disciples' wounds of fear. And here he says to Peter, instead of the third time, agapao thou me, guess what he says? Simon, phileo thou me. He shows him what agape is by coming down to his love and saying, I know you can't and you know you can't, 
the willing admission that all you do is phileo me is a long improvement over what you were saying in the garden, how you'd die for me. And Jesus brings himself down to where Peter is, lets go of the ideal of agape, embraces phileo and says, phileo thou me. And Simon, with great relief, that's when Simon said, Lord, you know everything. <laughs> you know everything. And I do indeed phileo you. And then they started the journey, the rest of his life, toward moving to agape. What a beautiful story. The Emmaus-bound disciples on the road, why could they not see Jesus when he came to them? Because they said, we thought this was he. We thought this. Man, how much of our life is spent paralyzed by disappointment? I thought I would. We thought this would be. I thought it would be better by now. I thought it would be farther. I, I had no idea. And Jesus comes to them, doesn't even reveal himself, but opens up the scriptural text and begins to minister to their disappointment, explaining to them that what happened really wasn't as bad as they thought it was. Each of these groups, just like us, with our griefs, with our doubts, with our disappointments, with our failures, with our regrets, with our fear, each of these could not see the new because of these eye-closing emotions that they were experiencing. And in every situation, Jesus, th this is the message of Eastertide, Jesus ministers to these emotions at their root. Jesus ministers to their eyes. He ministers to their faith. That's what faith is. Faith is just the eyes of your soul. He ministers to their eyes, and each of them gently, invitationally, had their eyes opened, and then they were able to see him. The beautiful thing about our sacred text, and the reason 2,000 years into our faith, recycling a story and building it into our calendar, the reason that's not stilted is because our sacred text, the Bible, I, I suppose like all sacred text, is not just giving us a history lesson to fit into our orthodoxy. And maybe that's been some of the immaturity of our first 2,000 years as we're growing as a faith. These old stories aren't just doctrines and they're not just fixed things that we, that we hold as history lessons. But these stories, our, our text gives us spiritual patterns and eternal wisdom through these stories to the point that I, 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 so, I, I so find myself in Thomas's place that I realize this isn't just Thomas's story, this is my story. The Easter season, these stories are life-giving illustrations of a cycle that is woven into the very fabric of life. The cultural anthropologist, I mentioned her last week, I've been reading a good bit of her work this week, Angelus Arian, A-R-R-I-E-N. She is a dynamic spiritualist through cultural anthropology. She says this, she says, every indigenous culture, past and present, every indigenous culture on earth shares a common belief in a cycle of experience that though it is stated and honored in various ways, that cycle that every culture believes in can essentially be stated this way. What is not integrated will be repeated. What is not 
integrated will be repeated. Richard Rohr, if you want to look at a really accessible work on this particular subject, Richard Rohr, I don't know that he coined the phrase first, but he uses it powerfully. But just look it up, attached to Richard Rohr. Rohr says it this way, he says, what is not transformed will be transmitted. And he's talking about in, in me, Robin. Whatever I don't integrate of my stuff, and you know about stuff and familial stuff, whatever I don't find integrated in me will be repeated through me. Whatever is not transformed from me, Benny, or in me, the stuff of my past, if it is not transformed in me, it will be transmitted. The experiences of life, our hurts, our griefs, our wounds, our disappointments, our regrets, our failures, our fears, all of those things, they demand the antibodies of grace and mercy and self-awareness and self-compassion. This is the touch of resurrection. They demand it. And if they do not appropriately get those antibodies, that virus, that infection will grow and it can eventually erupt in gross and unusual ways, even becoming gangrenous and lead to amputations in your life. When it simply could have been that early on at the root, when the virus was first flowing in you, it needed the antibodies of agape. What is not transformed will be transmitted. Uh, the, um, the group, the therapeutic group, weakened group called Upward Bound. I don't know if any of you have ever done, it's kind of a, like a walk to Emmaus or uh, an encounter weekend, but Upward Bound is a really great group and they have a saying, and the saying is really profound, it, the saying is, if you can't get out of it, you better get into it. You, you feel what they're saying? If you can't get out of it, I'm talking about the stuff inside, if you can't get out of it, you better get into it. In other words, you really can't get out of what is in you. You can't, I mean, there's no way Peter can deny the fact that he denied three times. You can't get out of what is in you. So Upward Bound says, if you can't get out of what is in you, you better get into what is in you. Because if you're unwilling to get into what is in you, what is in you is going to start coming out of you. That makes sense? You can't get out of what's in you, so you better get into what's in you because if you don't get into what's in you, it's going to start coming out of you. I don't know who coined this phrase. I think I may have coined this phrase, but sometime I forget. So this could be me, but it could have been somebody else. In family systems, we have found that what we avoid talking about at dinner will end up having us for lunch. Right? Anybody ever been, anybody, you don't have to raise your hands, have a family that just avoids, just a family full of nines on the Enneagram, peacemakers who just, like Rodney King, just want everybody to get along, right? What we avoid in our families, and the, and the dinner table is just a metaphor for intimacy in our life, right? What we, afford, what, we, what we choose to avoid getting into at dinner will end up having us for lunch. We humans have known this for a long time. Several thousand years ago in the Mesopotamian region, a land called Samaria, as much as 7,000 years ago, I mean, 
three to four thousand years before Jesus lived this stuff, taught this stuff. Thousands of years before Jesus, there was a legendary figure named Gilgamesh. It was probably one of the most soaring Eastern works to this date ever written. And you should read this one too. Sorry to shoot on you today, but there, there's, some, there's some really good stuff here. And this is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is really a, a seminal work from which a lot of our Jewish roots come from and a lot of our stories come from. We weren't the first person, first people telling these creation stories and flood stories. But there's a part of the Epic of Gilgamesh that I have missed until recently because I'm, I'm always looking at, you know, how our faith is similar to other faiths and that's when you come from a conservative Christian background, the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of those things that kind of awakens you to more the mythology and the metaphor of our story than the literality. So I got lost there and I missed the beautiful um, emotive wisdom in the story. Gilgamesh was a tortured soul. He was a vacuous, empty, sad king. And he was so lost and so disconnected from himself. He wasn't just disconnected from himself. He was disconnected from others. He was disconnected from the gods. He himself was a demigod, but he was, he was disconnected from everything. And in his disconnection and vacuousness, he was always, throughout the entire epic of Gilgamesh, he is always seeking some new adventure. He's always seeking some new challenge because he just wants to feel alive. And it doesn't even matter if it's an adventure that will lead him to pain. He cannot feel alive, so he's always seeking some new thing to make him feel alive. Uh, he was even prone to start wars. Sometimes he would start the most unfounded wars because he, he had to be in the middle of a battle. He had to be avoiding death and trying to exact death on somebody. And so he was always fighting unnecessary battles. Boy, there's a metaphor. The unnecessary battles. I, recently, I, I have found an unnecessary battle I have fought my whole life. And I found this unnecessary battle through the recovery world. And that is, I can say I, and I think a lot of you would agree, in intense moments, in difficult circumstances, and in discomfort, especially as it relates to our relationships with other people, we often end up building defensive, self-defensive narratives. In every situation, we have a difficult situation, we immediately, instead of finding out the truth and digging in with the other person, we just retreat, Drew, and start building narratives in our mind. Well, I know what they're thinking. And I know what's going to happen here. And we start managing the heck out of the situation. And it has nothing to do with reality. It has to do with the narratives we have built in our mind. Do you know what a wonderful exercise it is just, just to stop in these moments and say, I am not going to create a narrative here. I'm not going to tell myself how they feel or what they're going to do. I'm not going to tell myself because I don't have the right to do that. Only they have the right to do that. And I am only torturing myself by building these narratives of fear. And really it's just a psychological self-protective uh, uh, medicine where we literally are trying to make it as bad as it can get, frame it that way, and then prepare. And psychologically we're saying if we can handle that, we can handle anything. 
and we torture ourselves with unnecessary battles like these unnecessary narratives. This guy was always starting unnecessary battles in order to feel life. And in one case, he was said to have made war with a forest deity named Humbaba. And he set out to kill Humbaba. And Humbaba, the forest deity, had done nothing but blessed him. And yet now he wants to kill him. He's going to kill something that has loved him because he wants to feel alive. And the only way he can feel life is to exact death. How sick is that? 7,000 years ago, the writer of that epic poem embedded in that story, and I don't know how I've missed it, this insightful tidbit. The writer of the Epic of Gilgamesh said, the reason Gilgamesh fought unnecessary battles was because like many before him, Gilgamesh sought to slay Humbaba rather than face the undiscovered country in himself. He sought to kill Humbaba rather than face the undiscovered country in himself. We could just set, I would love to break into groups of six right now and just explore what does it mean to discover the undiscovered country and in what ways do I externalize life avoiding the true journey of finding the undiscovered country in myself. Again, in the recovery world, they remind us this is our work in all sacred traditions. That's what the Paschal Cycle is about. Christianity, in its sacred wisdom, is teaching us to have the honest, curious courage with gratitude, humility, and love to man up, woman up, to human up and face the undiscovered country in ourself. Awareness, acceptance, action, repentance, redemption, resurrection. I don't care how your religion says it, it's the same thing. It's when we do what Gilgamesh couldn't do and that is with strength and resolve we face our own experiences. We go inward into that undiscovered country in ourselves and we are willing to face our demons. Because we know, we find out at some point, if we do not face the undiscovered country in our own soul, we will end up like Gilgamesh, exacting it on everybody around us and even exacting it on ourselves. We end up hurting ourselves and others when we do not face these things in ourselves. As I understand it, uh, a, a very progressive Muslim friend of mine tells me, and I've heard this said, I have not academically justified it, but my friend is an academic and a brilliant guy, and he tells me at its root, at its root, the Muslim word jihad has as its original classic meaning to face one's own demons. Jihad. Think about the pain of that word in this world. And yet originally jihad meant to simply face your own demons. 
Oh, that that word still meant that. Because the only true and holy war is to face our own demons, our own stuff. And when we refuse to do this, this is the message of Eastertide. When like the disciples, we look at the cross from afar and we run as hard as we can in the opposite direction until we hit water. And there we find our nets, our business and our busyness. So we can drown ourselves back in the busyness of life and not have to face what happened on that Golgotha of our soul. When we refuse to do true jihad, when we refuse to do this, we become clogged. Our soul is like a catalytic converter. And, and the hurt and the disappointment and the anger and the fear and the resentment, it is not processed. And noxious fumes are emitted that evaporate the ozone of our world. We become bitter and we externalize these unresolved pains through abuse and revenge and war. Wounds fester, they infect, and then they explode and they erupt. Mark Nepo, a writer that you should read. There's another should today, a writer that it would be great for you to read. Mark Nepo says, taking it out on others is little more than a powerful distraction from accepting the legitimate suffering that has arisen from the wheel of our life. Taking it out on others is little more than a powerful distraction from accepting the legitimate suffering that has arisen from the wheel of our life. An acceptance that if we, if we pursued that undiscovered country and if we avoided the distraction of taking it out on others, if we accepted our legitimate suffering, if we saw the wheel of life, and if we knew that it is not only good news that Christ arose, it was good news that he died. It was good news that he, he was buried. If we, like Mary and the other women, will simply be about the business of tending effectively to the death in a burial process, it is out of this that resurrection comes. You see the wisdom? And when that acceptance comes, Nepo says, it then, instead of making us enemies, acceptance can make kindred spirits of us all if we let it. Pete Rollins, I was up in Seattle here all back with my friend Ryan Meeks, um, East Lake Church, the church that followed us in inclusion a couple of years ago. Um, Ryan's 37, 38 years old, prayers for him. He just was diagnosed with lymphoma. Thankfully, it's... Um, it's Hodgkin's lymphoma, not non-Hodgkin's, which is so much worse, but it's still tough, and he's got a long year of treatment ahead. But they're a sister church of ours, and Ryan's a dear friend of mine, and I was up with him here a while back, and he had just had a friend of his that I don't know, but have read after, a philosopher, a Scottish philosopher named Pete Rollins, speak for him. And I watched the sermon that Pete was speaking, and August, in the sermon, Pete was talking about the ghost in our life. And I think I've quoted this before, but it bears repeating. Pete said, for most of us, you know, when you go through a, a, a cemetery and you look at the headstones, the headstones say, gone but not forgotten. And Pete said, so that the, the ghost that we, that we kind of own and think about are the ghosts that are gone but not forgotten. But 
Uh, Chris, Pete said the real ghosts in our life aren't the ones who are gone but not forgotten. The real ghosts in our life, the ones that haunt us, are the ones that are forgotten but not gone. Wow, Shannon, think about that. The ghosts in our life, the ones that haunt us. The ones that bless us from the grave, they are gone but not forgotten. The ones that haunt us are the ones that are forgotten, but they are not gone. They are embedded in us like the concentric rings of a tree. Ghosts. Mark Nepo goes on, he, he talks about the lost art or the art of facing things. If we don't, if we don't face things, the suffering ends up passing through us like a dark virus. If Mary would not have met the resurrected Christ and had that grief tended to, she would not have ended up in the baptismal tank. If Thomas would not have had a Christ extend his own wounds to him and tell him, tell him to touch the wounds, to feel the pain, Thomas's existential doubt would not have been healed. And, and you've got to believe that Mary, if the grief would have been unhealed, would have extended that grief to others in her life, Barbara. And if Thomas would not have had his own doubt healed, would he not then have become a cynical purveyor of doubt, hoping to assuage the own pain, his own pain of doubt by convincing others to doubt with him? If we don't find this, the suffering passes through us like a dark virus. Uh, Gerald May, a renowned psychiatrist who wrote an incredible book on the idea of the dark night of the soul. If you've ever wanted to explore uh, St. John of the Cross's brilliant 400-year-old idea of the dark night of the soul, if you think you're going through a dark night of the soul, read St. John of the Cross, but to really get accessible, this incredible Christian psychiatrist, Gerald May, wrote an entire book on the dark night of the soul. Do yourself a favor if you're struggling with faith and if you're struggling to connect, Gerald May, the dark night of the soul. But uh, Gerald May in another book says, this about vengeance. May says, years later I learned of some studies of traumatized children in which an attitude of revenge seemed to compensate for what otherwise would have been paralyzing depression. Revenge is the unconscious choice the child and adult make because the paralyzing depression is too much. And we've been hearing from the psychological community for years and it could be overwrought and oversimplified, but at least a part of depression can be anger turned inward. I learned in studies of traumatized children that an attitude of revenge is simply an unconscious compensation for what otherwise would have been paralyzing depression. At last I began to see how, at a primitive psychological level, vengeance can serve a certain self-protective function. It by no means prevents future injury, but revenge can function as a defense against the reality of insults or injuries that have already been sustained. In the absence of revenge, we would be left with the bare pain of our loss, the sheer awful fact of it. Without revenge, we would have to hear what may seem like bottomless grief and despair. 
In other words, the child would have to see themselves, and they simply do not have eyes for it. Hmm. Often our unhealth, our avoidance, our unconsciousness, instead of exploring it, we stuff it. And children have no other way unless we give them ways. Heidi, I think about you in this. To give them channels, as wonderful people like you do, to give them channels for their grief. And some children's wounds are so deep that the infection is so raw that the expression of that, the tending to that is, it is gangrenous. It is, it is um, heroic work. But we as adults are called, that's why I list again the six virtues of honesty. And then not just honesty, but one we could gloss over, curiosity. The willingness to say there is undiscovered country here. And then after curiosity has revealed the shocking truth, then there has to be courage. Oh, for courage. Courage. To explore our stuff, to face what we naturally have a tendency to hide, and Nepo says this, Nepo says, we lie because we refuse to cry. To cry instead of lie, to face instead of hide, to become vulnerable instead of hardening. The easy way is the way of hardening. The terribly difficult way is the way of vulnerability and softness. I'll close today with this, and then we'll just pick up here next week because my time is running out. I told somebody before this morning, I've never been more excited about a series. And this message that I wrote this week, I literally, most of the time I look at my messages and I think, eh, we'll see. This one I looked at and thought, oh, my God, this is a masterpiece if, just, if, if only I had the capacity to convey it. There are times that the prophet looks at the message and it so exceeds, as Frederick Buechner said, you long for the silver tongue, but you open your mouth against the brilliance of it all and clack, clack goes the wooden tongue. So I've clack, clacked all over this one, but this is important stuff. This is us. This is Christianity. This is our cycle. I'll close with this. The true story is told of a little nine-year-old Guatemalan girl. This little girl had seen her parents three years before ripped from her out of the hut and killed. At six years old, her parents were killed. She and her brother, other family members survived in the, in the raging of Guatemala's semi-civil war. In a retaliative move, I don't fully understand, I, I didn't get the full story, what I do know is Shortly after her parents were killed, her little brother was stolen in an act of retaliation and never recovered. Perhaps trained to fight um, for the guerrilla rogue army. So lost her parents, lost her brother, and three years later, a missionary, an aid worker, somebody came across this little girl in the village, and this sad little orphan of war was seen quietly 
<laughs> she was seen quietly pulling the wings off of a butterfly. And as she pulled the wings methodically off of the butterfly, she whispered, Pobrecita, Pobrecita, poor little one, poor little one. This picture of a child in her broken innocence and in her unspeakable pain is a compelling picture to some extent of us all. She was, of course, the butterfly that she held. She was the poor little one whose wings had earlier been torn from her heart and soul. She was Pobrecita. She was the one who carried a burden of sorrow, of pain, too large for her little heart. And in the tearing of wings, smaller and more defenseless than her own, in her unresolved and unhealed pain, she was simply trying to alleviate the pain by passing her own wound on to another. And so it is with us, my friends. We are the Mary who stands at the grave we are the Thomas who stares through the darkness of doubt. We are the Emmaus-bound disciples who have experienced a disappointment so grave that life will never be the same. We are Simon Peter, so grieved by our own failure and regret, paralyzed. Each of us is the little one with the ripped soul whose wings and hearts have been torn. And the Paschal cycle and the Easter season is a season of resurrection because our wounds are too large for one simple resurrection, one simple sighting to heal it all. There has to be 40 days, there has to be a year, there has to be a space, there has to be a community, there has to be a coming in and out of our life, there has to be a recurring touch of grace. One dose of the antibody will not do it. And so we are called in the Easter season to give ourselves to the sightings of a healing resurrected one. We are called to give ourselves in the Paschal Easter season to this lesson of naming our deaths, of tending to our burials, to include in our soul work the burial work that, that even Paul said is an inescapable part of the good news. To tend to these things with the perfumes of grace and the spices of self-compassion to bring our spikenard and spice to the tomb and to apply this self-compassion and mercy to our wounds and our tearings and our losses. And resurrection is not about instantaneous epiphany and healing, resurrection is about a season of healing when we learn to see again. And if we don't do this work, like the little girl, we will pass on the tearing of wings instead of the tenderness of relationship and community. Can you say amen? amen. Let's bow and complain.
and our hearts open for just a moment. And let me for 30 seconds, maybe a minute, refrain from words. And let us sit in silent meditation and prayer. And let us consider the tearing and healing of wings. Sweet Christ, living one, dead one, buried one, resurrected one, sweet spirit of all that is, creator and lover of our soul, tend in resurrection gentleness to the tearing of our wings. And a word of admonition to a congregation, yet a prayer. Share with one another. Lean in to phileo and community until agape forms. And if the tearing of wings is too severe, find someone, a spiritual director, a counselor, a psychiatrist, a therapist, a pastor. Find someone that will take you to the place of resurrection that will take you to where the perfumes and spices and antibodies of grace and mercy and compassion are. Be good to yourself this week, Pobrecita. Poor little one, may you find healing in this Easter tide. Pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go and be good to one another.